And we're going to look at three passages in our study this morning. So let's start by turning to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. You know, as we've been going through this series that we called Small, we have been looking at the profound impact of small objects like a stone or a barley field or loaves and fish, which we studied last week. Or we've been looking at how small decisions like a second glance of lust or one sentence about a prophet or climbing a tree, how those small actions and small decisions change lives. And we have seen that it doesn't take much to produce a significant change, to see a life dramatically different because of something we have done or said or did. And as we saw last week, many times as we do that, it puts us in the middle of God working in literally miraculous ways. Now, I believe the Lord gave us these examples to remind us that not one of us is insignificant. Not one of us is even average. Every single one of us has the opportunity to be used in a mighty way. And as we surrender ourselves to the Lord and we live faithfully for Him, that goes up exponentially. Because once we're in the Lord's hand and living under the Lord's control and experiencing the Lord's power, there are no limits, literally. Because how many know nothing's impossible with God, right? So Moses, when he's tending the sheep in the wilderness, can never picture that one day he's going to part a sea. Elijah could never picture when he's sitting by the brook eating from the ravens who are bringing him food that one day he's going to call down fire from heaven and a sacrifice is going to be burned up. Peter and John, as they're fishing, before they ever even meet Jesus, can never imagine that one day their shadow will heal people. So when we say, well, I'm just average person doing the... No, you're not an average person. God can use us in miraculous, amazing ways when we are surrendered to him. Now, as we're surrendered to him and as we live faithfully for him, of course, as we've seen almost weekly, the enemy hates that. And when I say hate, hate's not really a strong enough word. He absolutely loathes, despises when we live for the Lord. And he's fighting it with all the resources he has. And he will continue to do so until the day when the Lord throws him in the lake of fire for all eternity. But here's the thing. The devil many times uses the same small method that God uses. Because he's a deceiver, right? He's, he, he mocks God by twisting what God does. So very rarely will the devil produce a full-on onslaught of, of overwhelming temptation and oppression on us. That, that usually does not happen. What he does is he nickel and dimes us. He uses very small, subtle methods. He, he promotes uh, just kind of gradual moral compromise. And kind of slow spiritual dullness and regression. And kind of real simple waves of indifference. And small fractures of division in our marriages and in our church. Now, now, Jesus warns us about this. Because he says, 
This is going to relate both to your spiritual progression and to the church. And he does this through something very small. The object we're going to look at this morning, which, which instantly triggers a powerful change. The, the object this morning is leaven. Now, the concept of leaven traces all the way back to when Israel, remember, is in bondage in Egypt, and God says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to get you out. Pharaoh's going to let you go tonight. So when you prepare, I want you to make bread, but I don't want you to put any leaven in it because you don't have time for the bread to rise. You're going to leave in a hurry. Get yourself ready. Get your shoes on now. Like, you know, when you tell the kids time to go to school and they're still walking around without your shoes. Get your shoes on. It's like four degrees outside. Get your shoes on now. That's what Jesus is saying. Get your shoes on now because you're going in a minute. So bake the bread, but don't put any leaven in it. And then it goes down to when Jesus, and we'll study this in a minute, when Jesus talks very directly, especially to the Pharisees, about the concept of leaven. And then it goes all the way to Paul writing to the early churches about the dangers of compromise. And we're going to look at that in a moment here in chapter 5. So leaven has an impact. Now, uh, for us, the concept of leaven uh, not being desirable may seem a little odd to us because if you're someone who likes to eat bakery products and you know I do, right? Leaven is important. If you like fresh bread out of the oven, can you smell it right now? Mmm, some fresh, oh, it just smells so good, right? Just put a little butter on there, the butter just kind of melts in, a little jelly, oh man, it makes you happy right there. Or, or, or can you smell the cinnamon rolls? Like, oh, and you know the glaze is going to go on. It just, it just makes you smile. There's no way you can look at a cinnamon roll and not smile, right? Right, asparagus, not smiling about asparagus. You show me a cinnamon roll that's warm out of the oven, man, I'm all over that. Or my favorite, oatmeal chocolate chip cookies. Oh, boy, you'd make, oh, man, I, oh, okay, I can't make those. I'm trying to lose weight, trying to eat sugar. But we like those, right? They need yeast. They need bra- uh, uh, baking soda. They need baking powder. All those things are called leavening agents. And leavening agents produce two results. I studied this week. I did some science because I was not good at science in high school. So I had to use Google. Google's a wonderful thing sometimes. All right? So leavening agents are, are chemicals that expand the dough and make it rise by putting carbon dioxide in. So the carbon dioxide and the acids expand and make the dough rise. And that leads to what's called fermentation. Fermentation enhances the flavor and the smell of the product. So if you're making a chocolate cake and you're walking through the den, you go, hmm, somebody's making chocolate cake. That's because of the leaven. Now in the Bible... Let's bring it spiritually now. Spiritual leaven has the same effect, but the outcome is not helpful, it's harmful. So the act of expanding, the act of puffing up, right? Because when you see dough rise, when you make dough, you put it in the bowl, you cover it, you put it in a warm place, and over the next hour or two, it doubles, right? It rises, and then you put the dough in, let's say it's a bread dough, you put it in a bread pan, and you don't want to fill the bread pan, because what's it going to do? It's going to rise and pour over. So you fill it about halfway, and over the can span of 30 or 40 minutes, the bread rises, That concept of rising and expanding spiritually represents pride. 
It represents the spread of sin and spiritual corruption. And then that act of, of sensory modification, right? When you start to smell the difference and, you, and it goes on. That represents a pervasive push to damage God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's ultimately referring to God's complete authority, God's final judgment over all things, when the devil's oppression will be stopped and he will be defeated and put down forever. That's the kingdom of heaven. But there's also a present application. Because in the present, Jesus says in Luke 17, the kingdom of heaven is now because I am here and I have brought salvation. So as his church, we are called to spread the gospel and represent the kingdom of heaven in how we live. So there's a double thing. The kingdom of heaven in some senses is now because we're living it out because Jesus came. And the kingdom of heaven is the ultimate thing of what God's going to do in the end. So we have to, a responsibility now to be on guard and to personally protect ourselves spiritually and to protect the body so that our faith and our witness and the church will be represented well in the world. This is the concept 11. So this morning, that's a kind of a long introduction. We're going to look quickly at three texts. And each one is going to show how to offset this concept of leaven. And I'll explain it more as we go along. But one of these texts is going to be personal. And then two are going to be about the church. So I want to uh, encourage you, take notes as always. And as we do this, let's commit right now, even now, that this is going to be how we live. Okay? So Galatians chapter 5 Thank you for turning. Look at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Go to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, before we can talk, as we're going to in the, in the second part of our study, before we can talk about effectively guarding the body of Christ and representing the Lord well as a church, we have to be faithfully maturing in the Lord first. Us individually, you and I, have to be standing for Him. But as Paul says here, there are times when we don't want to do that. We don't want to live in the new life. We want to go back to the old way. Now, in the case of the Galatians, they were still holding on to the law. The whole dilemma of the book of Galatians is that there was a group of Jews that said, we love Jesus and we're glad for salvation, but we don't quite feel like that's enough. We still are holding on to the fact that we're Jews and that we were raised with the law. So here's what we think should happen. We think it should be the law and Jesus. Even though Jesus said, I fulfilled the law because you couldn't. I came as a new covenant. There's a new covenant in my blood. That means the old covenant of the law, that's, that's done. That's been accomplished. So there's a new covenant now of grace. Well, the Galatians said, mm, we don't think so. We think it should be both. And in fact, anybody that's not a Jew really should be compelled to also submit to the law. So they should be circumcised. They should follow all the rituals. And they should do the law too. Paul writes and says, nope, that's wrong. 
And I can tell you it's wrong because I was a Pharisee. I know the law backwards and forwards. I was the top Pharisee. He's not bragging. He's telling the truth. Philippians 3. I was the top Pharisee. I was the man of all men among the Pharisees. And I'm telling you, your theology is wrong. You're not accepting the freedom of grace. You believe you're still justified by the law, and that's continuing to keep you in spiritual slavery. Now, our problem, 2018, is just the opposite. We accept grace. We love grace. We, we think grace is wonderful, but then we abuse it by continuing in sin. We think, well, I'm free, and this is the point of Romans, I'm free, so now I can live however I want because you tell me that my salvation is secure, so if my salvation is secure and God will continue to forgive me, what's the problem? Now, the solution to both of these issues is our first spiritual principle this morning, and that is that we must be holy and consecrated. We must be holy and consecrated because there is an attempt to corrupt our new nature. The moment we surrender our hearts to Christ, the moment we trust him to save us and give our lives to him, God forgives us. Everybody say amen. God forgives us and he cleanses us and our nature is transformed from unholy to holy, from death to life, from darkness to light. He transforms us and he seals that with his spirit. Now at that moment, the enemy knows that he has lost his power to eternally own our soul. He knows that. But he's angry. He doesn't like being defeated. And it doesn't stop him from trying to take us down and corrupt us. It just motivates him. So even though he knows he can't have us, he also knows that we are still human and we still continue to sin. So he changes his tactics to entice subtle rebellion and kind of consistent lapses. So, so if we can be led, even as believers, to, to, to think sin's unavoidable, and, and you know, I, I, I don't really have mastery over it through the Lord, and, and I still struggle, and I'm on a journey, and I'm just kind of just doing my thing, and I'm, I'm doing my best. If we take that tack instead of saying, I'm no longer under control of sin. God had freed me. I don't have to live to sin anymore because I'm not a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. And I'm going to walk in the freedom that God's given me. And I'm going to be righteous and holy and consecrated to God. If that's not our thought, then we are going to start to think that sin is not only acceptable, but it may even be okay in some instances. That, that, it's, that it's fine. Now, Paul warns about this. If you're taking notes, write down Romans 6.1 because Paul warns about this and he says some of the people, some of you guys in Rome are saying, well, when we sin, God's grace abounds and we love experiencing God's mercy, so we'll just continue to sin and God's grace will continue to abound. And he says that's the attitude of spiritual entitlement. That's the attitude of you thinking that God's just going to keep doing and keep doing and keep doing and you don't have to do anything in response. No. Reject sin always. And if you think you don't have the power to do that 
Romans 6 says, 6, 6 says our self, our old self is crucified and no longer has control over us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creature in Christ and your old life is passed away. Ephesians 4 says put off that old life and put on the new life of righteousness. There's no equivocation there. The old is done, the new is now. Now here's how the devil's twisted that. Now it's being taught that it's kind of edgy to, to be like the world. Instead of, as Christians, being holy and set apart, which is what we're clearly called to in Scripture, we will be more relevant if we are kind of like the saved and we'll be better able to minister to them and, and reach them ultimately for Christ if we act like them. The best analogy I could think of that is it's like giving your kids candy and letting them stay up all night believing that at some point they'll see the wisdom of eating vegetables and going to bed at eight. Like at some point it's just going to click like, oh, this is wonderful. They've given me everything I want. They're acting like this is the greatest thing and eventually I'll become wise. The only way the world's going to understand the need for Jesus Christ is to see lives that are set apart to Jesus Christ. To see that there's a distinction, not because we're proud and arrogant and saying, look at us, but because we want to point people to Christ. So look back at verse 9. The Spirit says, just a little leaven changes and corrupts the whole dough. So if we continue to play with sin, that, that clear disobedience to the Lord, it's only going to damage us. We don't need to give the enemy any help trying to corrupt us. Instead, we're supposed to resist him and he'll flee from us. And the best form of resistance is holiness and consecration. Holiness is purity from sin. Please hear that word purity. Purity from sin. The absence of spiritual leaven. It's an intentional, humble, sacrificial, daily, die-to-self decision that, that we are not going to put up with sin anymore, that out of gratitude to the Lord and gratitude for his cleansing, that we are going to walk in holiness. It's called an act of consecration. Consecration means to be set apart and dedicated to holiness. And that's who we are as believers. Now, if we can understand the power and effectiveness of the entire body of Christ living that way, it would change our life and our ministries. But it's not the case yet. And the enemy is unfortunately working very hard, not only to corrupt believers, but to corrupt and diminish the church. And that's where he works both externally and internally to try to damage our ministry. So turn over to Matthew 16, and let's look at two thoughts here of how the leaven tries to infect the body of Christ. And when I say church, I'm talking about this church, and I'm talking about the evangelical church worldwide. So we're going to kind of use those terms interchangeably. But the first line of attack against the church is externally. As the enemy tries to damage our beliefs and damage our ministry. And Jesus talks about this and warns us about this in Matthew chapter 16, start in verse 5. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Here's last week. Do you not remember yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets you picked up? Or the other time it happened, the seven loaves of the 4,000, how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I don't speak about literal bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Now, as this external leaven tries to infect the church, there's a second action that we need to take. And that is that we must be strong in doctrine and discipline. We must be strong in doctrine and discipline because there is an attempt to corrupt our convictions and our witness. Now, we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were constantly challenging Jesus, constantly trying to to defeat him, to deny his teaching, and they were plotting how they could get rid of him. The reason they did that is because Jesus' words and his actions were exposing them. It showed that what they had been teaching was false. It was not according to the word of God. And and he really exposed their blatant hypocrisy. See, the Pharisees had altered the law. They had added to it and manipulated it and made it subjective in order to promote themselves. And because so few people had read, people in the first century weren't holding a Bible in their hands like we are this one. Do you know what a privilege it is that we get to do this today? We get to hold the Word of God in our hands? That The people in that day, in Jesus' time, didn't do that. They didn't have the Word accessible. They weren't able, really, to read it. So the instruction about the law was limited to the Pharisees and the Sadducees teaching them. And the people couldn't really hold them accountable, not only because they didn't understand, but because the nation itself at that point was not spiritually strong. So the the Pharisees and Sadducees had gotten very used to being in control and very used to drawing attention to themselves. They would walk around in their flowing robes with their phylacteries on their foreheads and on their arms, and they'd attach bells to the bottom of their, their cloaks. So when they walked, they were very, very strong presence. I remember seeing one in Israel one time, and you go, whoa, look at that. I mean, it's just a hat and, and dark, and the curls down the side, and the bells, and they just walk through very slowly. Well, they're, oh, wow, look at that. There's one of the Pharisees. So they drew attention to themselves and they weren't really concerned that the nation was spiritually adrift because they themselves were spiritually adrift. But they presented themselves as righteous. Their theology was wrong. They were resisting the work of God. They were insensitive and lacking love to people in need. They were just kind of dull, hard-hearted, arrogant people. So Jesus comes along and he's completely different. And he's ministering to people and hugging people. And he's teaching with authority that everybody goes, whoa, that is straight from heaven. Like, that's not man's words. That's God's word. And Jesus is healing the blind and ministering to the sick and casting out demons. And every time they come up to him with some theological trap like they do in the first part of chapter 16 and try to, and try to trick him and show that he's not authentic, he, he calls out their duplicity. He shows how wrong they are. And then he turns around and shows compassion and love for people that they never showed. And that infuriated them. That infuriated them. 
because he was revealing the corruption of their doctrine. He was showing their hard-heartedness, and that hard-heartedness and corrupt doctrine was starting to corrupt the people. So Jesus doesn't just say, hey, guys, just, just ignore them. Don't listen to them. Notice the words he uses. He says it in verse 6, and he says it in verse 11. He says, beware of them. Beware of them. Now, that's a very important warning for us to hear because the leaven of the Pharisees is very present now. False teaching and distorted doctrine are always the first line of attack. How do I know that? Because, again, if you go back to Genesis 3, what does the devil say? God's not right. You need a different theology. That's really what's underlying the temptation. You need a different doctrine because God's not right. So that's always going to be one of the first lines of attack against believers and against the church. And we may think, well, that's not really that much of an issue in 2018. I, I want us to think just for a moment about how soft the church, especially in America, has gotten about biblical theology. And how quickly we have adapted what the Bible teaches in order to appeal to the masses. Now, Scripture is what it is. And it is not open to subjective interpretation based on the culture and demands of the day. We have to believe that. We have to understand that. And we have to live that. But there is no question. I don't think this is debatable for a second that the American church has slowly eased up its stance on a number of issues that the Bible clearly defines. Divorce, alcohol and substance abuse, homosexuality and gay marriage, abortion, less so, being pure in, in visual images and visual media, even prioritizing time in the body of Christ. So less priority on prayer, there's less emphasis on deep study of the Word of God. We want to just scratch the surface and feel good about ourselves. There, there's shallower theology in worship songs. They're, they're more centered towards self. And then there's this rush to quickly have a service because we're busy and we need things to do and we're going to need 19 campuses and you better be online and streaming because I'm a very busy person. Rather than coming and abiding in the presence of Christ... And by allowing this, this non-biblical theology, and that's all we can say it is, to dictate our teaching and our practice, especially because we feel pressure to never, ever be seen as intolerant or judgmental, which is a favorite tactic of the enemy. The leaven now has infected the doctrine and the witness of the American church. And that attack is doing exactly what leaven does. It's molding and shaping and redefining us. So it begins with false teaching. And then that's supported by hypocrisy. As the leaven starts to get into the dough by being introduced to our theology, then we start to justify actions that contradict the New Testament because we've learned to accept non-biblical principles. And when that happens... Our, our, our witness is effectively diminished. Even though we may think, well, this will draw more people and it's kind of a new day of ministry and a new way to do ministry. Listen, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. And the enemy is a deceiver and his goal is to always elevate pride and reduce Jesus. So as he does that, 
if he can make this, if he can make this about us and about success and diminish the need for evangelism, diminish the need for discipleship, diminish the need for godliness, then he'll be effective in accomplishing his goals. So the, the external attack of the enemy, of the leaven, is to weaken the church. So how do we offset that? Look at the screen. We have to be strong in doctrine and discipline. We have to know what we believe. If you're uncertain, if you want a starting point, go on our website. We have our doctrinal statement there, and you can start with that. There's probably 10 to 12 verses for every line of our doctrinal statement. Look up those verses. Take the next three, four, five weeks and research that. And, and if, you're, if you're like, well, I don't really know doctrine. I was raised a certain way, or I wasn't raised in the church, or I've never studied it. Listen, this is for everybody. Just take those verses and start to study them. Because we need to be strong in doctrine, and we need to be faithful to live according to the Word of God and new life that we've been given. So, so one and two, the first principle and second principle go together. But there's another line of attack, and this one's even more dangerous because it's internal. Turn over 1 Corinthians 5. Let's look at our last passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We know about the problems in Corinth. We've studied Corinth before. Many were still living immorally to the extent that Paul calls them spiritual infants. He says, I can't even give you, this is in chapter 3, I can't even give you meat, spiritual meat, the meat of the word. You guys are still drinking bottles. Then there was this serious problem with pride and condescension in Corinth. People were bragging about their spiritual gifts. That's chapter 12. People were bragging, oh, I got baptized by so-and-so, and I got baptized by so-and-so. That's in chapter 1. So there's all kinds of pride and arrogance and condescension. There, there's no spirit of love, which is why Paul takes a whole chapter, chapter 13, and defines what love is. Selfless and humble and patient and kind and not bragging and, and, and all the things that we know of 1 Corinthians 13. So he's saying, love is gracious, love is selfless, love is merciful, just like Christ. He set the example for us, but, but that's nowhere to be found in Corinth. So there's a second part of love that fits with what we just talked about. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says that love rejoices in truth. It rejoices in God's truth. It doesn't capitulate morally in the name of being accepting. And that was probably the most serious problem in Corinth is that there was an open tolerance of sin in the name of being loving. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Oh, we need to just tolerate what's going on because, because we have to be loving. Now, Paul writes in chapter 8 and 9, don't use your liberty to sin because it is still an offense to God. And being flippant with holiness mocks God's grace. Sin is leaven. It, it corrupts. And again, this ties in with the idea of false teaching and, and hypocritical living. Listen, false teaching and hypocritical living can produce two results. For the group that's doing it, they can be arrogant and proud that, that they're being hypocritical, and, and the, the, the rationale of that is we're enlightened. We're not stuck in the past. You know, the Bible's 2,000 years old, and, and you just need to live in freedom and understand that the Bible's not that restrictive, and if it is that restrictive, it shouldn't be. That's one side. The, the other extreme is 
the risk of arrogance for those who are holding tightly to the word of God, that we feel superior, that we're not carnal, that we're better than you, and, and judging motive and judging intent and judging lifestyle to the point of not being able to reach people for Christ because we're seen as hateful. So there are these two extremes. And in both cases, the focus stops being on the Lord and there's a diminished attitude of love. So Paul addresses this. Look what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Again, using the concept of leaven. Your boasting is not good. Do you know, do you not know, excuse me, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? It's exactly what Jesus said. Clean out the old leaven so that you may have a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover, referring back to the Jews in Egypt, Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, feast of unleavened bread, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So there's an attack of leaven against us personally, spiritually. There's an attack of leaven against the church externally. And now we're seeing the attack of leaven against the church internally. And to offset this internal act of leaven, we need to take the third action. We need to be driven by humility and love. We need to be controlled by humility and love because there is an attempt to corrupt our selflessness and our unity. Now again, principle one and principle two lead into this. If we are not walking in holiness and our doctrine is weak and subjective, there is going to be dissension and fracture in the body. If we're not walking with the Lord and we're not following the Bible, the church of Jesus Christ is going to be a mess. And the enemy's tactic then will be to corrupt how we treat one another and serve each other. Prominence, control, those will become very important. Opinion will matter more than doctrine. Relationships will be damaged. Lack of love, lack of forgiveness, gossip, dissension, disunity, that will be the new normal. And it will be done by distracting us about minor issues. We'll start to argue about worship style. And we'll start to argue about service times and leadership structure and how the money's spent and how the building looks. All these things will, will become internal, self-focused issues that aren't focused on Jesus Christ. Now, you have probably been in a church like that. I know I have. And how many know from experience that the picture of leaven spreading through the dough is very, very accurate? I've been in churches, huge, five, 6,000 people. I've been in churches, small, 40 or 50 people. This problem is the same in every church. People having little conversations in the corner, people getting uptight about their opinion, people feeling like they're not being heard, people feeling like, well, I don't have enough, nobody's paying enough attention to me, and I don't have enough authority, and that person's wrong, and I don't like how they, I mean, you guys know that. We've been there. Now, does that make ministry effective? Rhetorical question. Of course not. It makes ministry about as ineffective as it gets. Because when the culture looks at us, they go, I don't want to be part of that. 
The bottom line is that these types of problems, the culture of selfishness and polarization and disunity, is caused by a lack of love. And when demands become more important than a denial of self, and when control is more important than the condescension of our own rights, it tells us very clearly, love and humility is not driving the bus. Francis Schaeffer, I don't know if you guys know that name, he was a theologian, very, very intelligent man. Um, his primary ministry was in the 70s through the 90s, but he wrote in an essay called The Mark of a Christian, I've observed one thing among true Christians in their differences in many countries. What divides and severs true Christian groups and Christians, what leaves a bitterness that can last 20, 30, 40 years, or even 50 or 60 years in a son or daughter's memory, is not the issue of doctrine or belief which caused the differences in the first place. Invariably, it's a lack of love. And the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences, these stick in the mind like glue. I know you and I have experiences in church where that is true, right? Somebody said something to you. Somebody did something to you. Somebody offended you. Somebody shut you out. Somebody didn't forgive you. Somebody gossiped about you and you go, that's it. I'm done. I'm done with this church. I may even be done with the faith. I don't know. I'm just, I'm wounded. And that's not what church is supposed to be like. But that's what the devil's facilitating. He wants disunity within the overall body, and he wants disunity within the local body. And we know that he tries to divide and conquer. And because he can't fully conquer us, he just wants to do damage. So he keeps pushing to diminish our love for the Lord first, and our love for each other second because he knows there's a spiritual domino effect that if we're selfish and we start to desire sin, then we'll get off kilter spiritually and very quickly, boop, 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 that'll start to affect our relationships. And we'll start to despise each other. Well, I'm not going to church this morning. I'm not going to run into that person. I'm going to sit on the opposite side of the sanctuary. Hope they don't talk to me. I don't want to see that person. You know what? Let's visit a different church this week. And guess what? That church has got its own problems. The answer is not to keep changing churches. The answer is to become a different person and a different church so all the churches are healthy. So we could just go interchangeably. Now, the Lord gives a very clear, let's finish with this. The Lord gives a very clear, very simple way to offset all of it. Galatians 5.13, he says, through love, serve one another. Now, don't race past those five words because they seem trite or obvious. Okay, we need to love each other. Let's sing kumbaya and hold hands. No, that, that's... No. Love is defined by humble sacrifice. You do not love somebody. Somebody does not love you unless there is humble sacrifice. And humble sacrifice fights the leaven of selfishness. 
And then as we serve one another, that indicates if I'm serving you, I can't be in control, I can't be dominating, and I'm also not just sitting back waiting to be catered to, which is what a lot of people do. Well, just serve me, serve me. The church should serve me. Nope, you should serve the church. You should serve the Lord. Every single person, this is a goal, every single person is involved in at least one ministry. I mean, actively serving, not just, you, you can't just come sit week after week. You got to serve. And when we start to serve and we serve out of love and sacrifice, here's what happens. It creates a totally different atmosphere. Now there's joy and there's love and there's unity. And when you combine love and service together, that's when evangelism starts to take place. Because we go, wait a second, there are 10,000 people within a mile and a half of this church. And we need to see them as Jesus did when he got off the boat and he looked at the crowds and he said, with compassion, Jesus felt for them because they're sheep without a shepherd. You know what? There are 10,000 people within a mile and a half of this church and we need to feel the compassion of Jesus for them because they are sheep without a shepherd. And then as love and service and evangelism starts to take place, now we want to teach people and train people and disciple people and we'll come in and worship and our worship will be pure and we'll give, and we'll give sacrificially, and our love for the Lord will be so evident. All the things that we say we want to be as a church when we read the second chapter of Acts. And at that point, listen now, I'm done. At that point, the enemy's tactics are rendered powerless. And we become wise and holy and more hostile toward his event, his attempts to divide us. Listen, if you and I want to be part of a modern-day miracle, that is a fantastic place to start. The evangelical church is divided by denomination and philosophy and race and demographic and how many churches are divided internally. It is a horrible, horrible witness to the world. But if they see in us a shared purpose and a shared conviction and love and unity and strength, the message of the gospel will be viscerally seen. And people will say, that's absolutely right. When they talk about the love of Jesus Christ and sacrifice and humility and salvation and cleansing, I see that in that church. I see that in that believer. God's victory is obvious. The enemy's defeat is obvious. And all the leaven is gone. That's what God wants. And you know what? It doesn't take much. Surrendered living, simple convictions that we hold fast to, selfless love. And when we have those the kingdom of heaven will be seen right here on earth. Let's ask the Lord to help us.